Hello, you're tuned to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. We're pleased to have you join us again. But I've seen in culture, when you take the church out of the picture, it creates a vacuum of need in society where people just don't know how they deal with guilt and shame, how they deal with the ache of the soul. Over the past couple of weeks, Dr. Corbett has been looking at forgiveness, how we're better able to forgive others and how to be forgiven. So what happens next? How do we rebuild after forgiveness? Unforgiveness is poisonous and even the sweetest person can be affected by it. So how do we move toward reconciliation? Let's find out by joining Dr. Corbett now for the conclusion to the Forgiveness series. In a moment, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God to do something in your life. This is not a passive thing that we're doing here. It's not me delivering something and just passively receive it. I'm asking you to participate in what we're doing today. I'm asking you to be active in what we're doing today. And I want to explain why. Our city, the city of Launceston, has a long history. In fact, literally from its inception, it has had a history where Christianity has been a part of the fabric of our city. We think of Launceston being settled in 1806, shortly after Hobart was settled as a penal colony, and then Launceston was settled and... Uh, one of the first buildings that was built was in um, uh, what is now St John Street and we had the, the government give the Presbyterian Church right near the foundation a, a patch of land which they did uh, and whenever a government did that that's called a glebe so you may have heard of the glebe nursery that's because that was a part of that original allotment of land to the church because the government at the time recognized that it was important to have a Christian presence from the inception of our city. Then of course uh, shortly after that I think it's about 10 or 20 years or so after that uh, what was known up until recently as St John's Anglican Church was founded and then there was a number of other churches that were founded. Our church traces its foundation this this church back to around about 1962 or so when uh, pastor phil hills planted an assembly of god church in launceston around that time and we are there is a there is a bit of a link to to us today and but apart from a brief moment where the uh churches of christ church which um there was a couple of them that merged to form what became door of, what had become Door of Hope. They got up to around about just. I remember talking with the then pastor Craig Spalding, and I introduced him as the first pastor in the the history of our city that's ever been able to pastor a church that has reached for Christ, one thousand people gathering every Sunday. And Craig Spalding, if you know Craig, you know he he doesn't boast, he doesn't brag, he doesn't do anything like that unlike myself he is someone (laughs) who immediately corrected me immediately he he said no no Andrew that's not right we we we've not broken a thousand every Sunday we just haven't we've we're up to 994 and he was very serious he said we've not we've not done it you know now I'm sure I know they've had meetings of over a thousand so have we 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 got close uh, when we had uh, Dr. Hiros here at the, the Albert Hall. Now, at the risk of sounding like I'm saying a church is of no value and no influence unless it has large numbers, 
at, at that risk, and I want to explain why I'm not, I'm not dodging that issue, I want you to hear what I'm saying, is that I've, I've been here now nearly 30 years, and I have seen churches come, churches go. I've seen churches go to a certain point and explode and splinter out. If you've been here a little while, you, you may have seen that as well. So it's not about numbers. It's about what the enemy has been able to do to disrupt the kingdom of God being expressed through a local church. That's, that's how I see it. It has never been my aim, never been my aim, to be a part, to, to do anything that's ostentatious as far as huge, huge numbers. And, and Kim will tell you, and she, she reminds me, that when, that when I came and... Uh, when Kim and I came, uh, the, the pastor had already, the existing pastor, uh, Philip Morgan, had already resigned. He had one more Sunday left. We came, not at their invitation, not at the invitation of the then church. We, didn't, we, we weren't known, we weren't invited, we, we, we just happened to turn up the week before he was due to finish. And as we, we chatted and he asked if... if uh, if he could put my name forward on the day he was finishing up uh, as the, the replacement pastor. And by the way, they didn't have many options. In fact, I was the only option. And I'd only turned up a week before. And I didn't know they existed and they didn't know I existed. But we knew God called us. It was a supernatural thing. But this is what I said to Philip Morgan in his house. I said, Phil, this is what God has put on my heart. That this church, which at the time was 17 members, this church will be a church of 300 people and then it will be, Kimmy, what's the next part of that? 300 people, then 300 men. I said that and I'm, I know uh, Stephen Hill, where are you? Where are you? You, you, you've sent me, um, what is it, 300, you know, the, that, that movie that no Christian should watch. Um, and you've said, you know, and it's about the, the uh, Spartans. Spartans, is that right? The Spartans, where, where it was 300 men that withstood the might of the Persian army. And, and so Stephen wants, wants 300 men wearing helmets and all sorts of things. That, that was never part of my vision, but it's a part of Stephen's. Now, I'm saying that to say, I'm taking a risk here. I'm taking a risk for you to go, well, pff, that hasn't happened. And I can tell you now, we, we actually have now already ticked over 300 on our roll. We're about 330 or something like that. Getting everyone together at the one time is a bit of a challenge. It's like herding cats. But sometimes we come close, like we did the other week when we had 275 here. Now, now I'm only saying this to say it's, it's not about numbers, but it is about the reason those numbers go up and then splinter. And that is because someone gets offended, someone takes a hurt and festers that and spreads that hurt and disseminates that hurt and causes people to react in a negative and ungodly and unchristian, unbiblical way and people leave and that church dwindles back down and sometimes they close. That's the history. What I've been doing over the last few weeks is talking about the issue of forgiveness because this is what I'm doing. I am making a spiritual warfare assault through what I preach. Because the enemy, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says this, we are not ignorant of the enemy's schemes to bring division, unforgiveness, bitterness and enmity between believers. 
He doesn't say the last bit, but that's the flow of the context. We are not ignorant of the enemy's schemes against the church. And so Paul's talking about, in 2 Corinthians, forgiving. And if we had the time today, I would use 2 Corinthians as a prime example of what I'm talking about where we, in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses the issue of sin where a man was sleeping with his stepmother sexually, not good night, but sexually committing fornication with his stepmother and the response from the heretics in the church was, isn't this wonderful how God's grace allows us to do such things now because God's grace means we're all forgiven. And we can do whatever we want. And Paul writes to them and says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Sin is an offence to God. God's grace does not mean automatic, unconditional forgiveness. It just doesn't. The issue of forgiveness is a huge one. And it's a huge one in, in church. In fact, the, the word that's translated into English as offence is the Greek word scandalon. And the enemy wants to come and fester scandal to create offence. And sometimes that offence is, is justified, it's warranted. Sometimes pastors say things and do things that are just uncaring and I get that and I've done that. And sometimes people do get hurt and they can then, the enemy can get a wedge into the relationship between believers so here's my heart in this. Firstly, I want every married couple to know how to transact forgiveness. Because if you are married, you need to know how to do that. The next group of people, those who are not married. Now, have I left anyone out? Those who are not married, you also will have relationships where they risk they risk, especially if it's a relationship with a believer, by that I mean friendship with a believer, where the enemy will cause something that maybe they've done and maybe they have done it. For you to go, that's it, I'm never talking to them again. And that relationship, that friendship is, is broken and destroyed. And I'm going to show you an example of this in Scripture between two of the greatest people in the New Testament. And we'll look at that in a moment. But I want you to understand how forgiveness works, why it's important to forgive, how to transact it, which means how to offer it, when you should offer it, and how to receive it. And today we're going to talk about what we do after that, how to rebuild after forgiveness. This issue is huge. It really is huge. People do all kinds of things because they're bitter. They do all kinds of things because they're hurt. I'm the father of three daughters and I have found that girls are particularly sensitive to the things that people say, the things that people do. Boys, half the time, they're so socially unaware, they're oblivious to the insults that they're getting. It's just oblivious. They're oblivious. Girls, listen to this. You need to understand this. Boys are really quite stupid. I'm just telling you. They'll say things, not realise how dumb the things they're saying are, how hurtful they are. You just need to look at them like an English set of puppy dog. You know, it's like, you're cute, but geez, you're stupid. You know, like, and learn how to forgive. This is really important for us as a church. It's really important. 
please, if, you, if you're hearing me say, oh man, this, our pastor's on an ego trip, you're trying to build a big church. No, I don't. If you, you, if you think that, you don't know me. But if you, if you do know me, you know that my heart is to honour Christ and to glorify Christ. And increasingly, I'm aware that, uh, you know, it's, it's only a matter of time before I hand the baton on to someone. But before I do, I'm mindful of the fact that God has put on my heart right 20, nearly 27, nearly 27 years ago, 1995, it was August 1995 when we shared this, or September, early September, when I said that God will help us as a church to get to 300 people, which seemed ridiculous at the time. 17 members. And here I am saying, it's going to be a church of 300. Lagana's going to grow. God's going to grow the church. They're going to see God do something that will honour Christ for generations to come. So with that in mind, please come with me on this as I wrap this series up and I don't know how we wrap it up because this is going to be a constant thing this is going to be something we just need to keep revisiting because we're human we need we need to but I've seen in culture when you take the church out of the picture it creates a vacuum of need in society where people just don't know how they deal with guilt and shame how they deal with the ache of the soul did you know you did you know and I've had a couple of pastors contact me in the last couple of weeks. They've said, I need to send someone to a psychologist. Do you know a good Christian psychologist I can send someone to because they are so messed up they need help? Now I'm saying that because the depths of problems that people can experience when, and I'm, please, I'm not trying to be simplistic about this, that if you know Christ, if you're walking with Christ, you can have problems, but you've got someone who becomes a problem bearer, who can take your problem, who can help you to navigate through that. But if you don't have that, you, you and I take our hope for granted. You, you have a problem, I'm sure you pray. I'm, I'm positive you pray. I, I do. It's a reflex thing. God, help me with this. I need your help with this. I'm sure you do that, right? We do that. Imagine living the kind of world, in the kind of world where you don't even think that's possible. And this is why psychologists are now booked up for something like six months. You can't get an appointment. People are battling with guilt and shame. They're battling with all kinds of ache in their soul. And I know that because (laughs) the other week, in fact, a few weeks ago, this is back in May when I was thinking about this series. As I'm beginning to think it through, Kim and I go, every Friday we, we have a date, we, we go for a coffee, we, we like to go somewhere we, maybe we haven't been before. And I went there and this was on the table. This is, the, you know, the art of forgiveness. I'm thinking, oh, right, it's an ad. You turn, you turn it over, it's like, but this is an ad. You can pay $35, it's a half-day thing, it's, it's local. You go to, you know, the, just you know, five minutes down the road here or go to Devonport if you want and, and you can learn how to be forgiven. If, if you, you know, I'm looking at this and, and I've got to tell you, I, I initially looked at this email address and I thought, oh, Mediation Tasmania. That's my slight dyslexia. I then looked at it again, I thought, it's not mediation in Tasmania it's meditate in Tasmania and there's the the Buddhist society thing there and there's a picture a Buddhist symbol there and then you'd flip the 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 brochure over on the table the art of forgiveness a meditation half-day course you can pay $35 to be forgiven and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be insulting I'm not trying to be funny I'm not trying to poke fun at this 
I'm saying this is symptomatic of the ache in people's souls that this even can happen. This is a Buddhist teacher, Diana Waterhouse. I'm sure she's a lovely lady. But it's how to find forgiveness by Buddhist techniques, which is to search for it in here somewhere. And and I'm going to tell you, that doesn't work. You can't forgive yourself for the things that you've committed against someone from whom you can only receive forgiveness. And so this is what I've been looking at, forgiveness, and looking at its importance, looking at how we learn to forgive, how we extend forgiveness, how we approach someone to be forgiven. We've hurt them, we've done something, we want to be forgiven. And now today, I want to talk about how we redeem forgiveness, how we rebuild relationships after Jesus said, in response to to Peter's question, here's Peter's question, this is Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? This was Jesus' response. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And I guess the, the point there is, you're not supposed to count you're supposed to do it now Jesus actually said if your brother comes to you and repents then forgive him so there's a that's that was the next part of this but this is why Jesus said that part of forgiveness when you release someone from your debt of revenge your right to hurt them back for the hurt they've caused you it's so important because if you don't, and this is, this is how he said it, so also my heavenly Father will, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And he's already told a story. Rachel's going to expand on this tonight in her message. And here's the thing about forgiveness and unforgiveness. It, it, to, to be unforgiving is a bitterness to your soul. And forgiveness is the cure. It's the only cure. You don't need the person to come to you and to apologize, to say they're sorry. You don't need the person to acknowledge their hurt that they've caused. You don't need that. You can release them and forgive them so that you're drinking the cure to the potential poison that could poison your soul and make you a bitter person. You can detect bitter people. They generally become very critical of everyone. Oftentimes, they're, they're almost flattering so flattery and criticism almost go hand in hand and it's an indication that quite possibly there's a bitter poison in that person's soul. So unforgiveness, <clears throat> if you don't forgive, unforgiveness seeks to return the hurt. That's what unforgiveness does. While forgiveness relinquishes your right to return that hurt. So here's what Paul said to the Ephesians at the same time he wrote to the Colossians. So we see this in Colossians uh, 3, 12 and 13 and then we see it here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. This is a profound truth that we need to understand because I've, I've, I've seen some people come and I, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this in the series or not but we've had in our prayer time I've had people come forward and say please pray for me I'm battling with unforgiveness and I get that 
If the hurt's deep, it's, it's a battle to forgive someone who every fiber of your body wants to hurt them back. God, I pray that you would bless them and here's how you should bless them. Let a building fall on them, Lord. You know, it's like that kind of prayer restraint you've got to hold back from those kind of prayers. Huh. But here it is, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here's the first point. If we can do that, as the fabric of our Christian fellowship, the word is koinonia, which is the Greek word for the kind of fellowship. It means everything in common. Common. Nothing airy or fancy about it. Koinonia. If we can do that, this church can only grow. Because who wouldn't want to be a part of that? People would be drawn to it. Like moths to a flame looking for a place where they can find love acceptance and forgiveness be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you but did you notice how Paul says we are to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you how did God in Christ forgive you in exactly the same way Jesus said you should forgive your brother who sins against you if he comes to you and repents forgive him and that's how God forgives us. Otherwise, he would not command us to repent. And he does command us to repent. The very first word out of the, very first, out of the mouth of Jesus for his very first sermon was repent. The very first word of the very first sermon in the New Testament, given by John the Baptist, was repent. The very first word of the very first day the church was born, Peter says in response to the question, what should we do? He says, repent. To repent means to acknowledge your guilt and to ask to be forgiven. That's why a genuine apology, if you want to transact forgiveness with another person, involves a genuine apology, not a no offence, not a politician's apology, where the Speaker of the House says, apologise, I apologise, and sit down. That's a genuine apology where you acknowledge because you've listened, you've heard their heart, and you've heard how when you did that thing or said that thing or had that attitude, whatever it is, how it caused them hurt. And this is what we need to understand in the way family dynamics work parent-child relationships that a person's hurt is a person's hurt it doesn't matter whether you think you've hurt them it's whether they think they've whether they feel hurt and that's where when a parent can say to a child I want to apologize to you because I recognize that when I said this or did this or pushed you too hard or did this I hurt you and for that I want your forgiveness because a genuine apology seeks forgiveness can you imagine in parliament the speaker of the house says apologize to the member opposite and someone stands up and says honorable member opposite i realize what i've said was completely out of order it was completely wrong i can see the hurt and the grief i've caused you the insult that i've caused you and i am remorseful for that and i regret what i've done would you please forgive me do you reckon i'll ever hear that in parliament but we need to hear it in our homes. We need to hear it in our church. So now I want to talk about then what? That happens. The apology is transacted. 
Remorse is expressed. Regret is expressed. Forgiveness is sought. Probably with the follow-up, I have forgiven you, but now I'm telling you, I forgive you. And so now we're talking about, now what do you do? What happens now in that relationship? What happens in that relationship between a husband and a wife? What happens in that relationship between a, a parent and a child? What about you? If you've been hurt by your mother or by your father, have you forgiven them? If you have and you've transacted that forgiveness, in other words, they've come and acknowledged the pain they've caused and, you've expre- and they've sought forgiveness and you've, you've given them your forgiveness, what now? What does it look like now? I want to tell you the story of I consider to be two of the greatest, I'm tempted to say greatest men in the Bible, but they're actually two of the greatest people in the Bible. In fact, if I was to ask you this question, how many of you would like the Apostle Paul to have been your pastor? See, one hand, thank you Tom, but no women put their hand up. Not many women would want Paul as their pastor. But how many would have liked Barnabas to have been your pastor? You know what Barnabas means? Bar means son of, Barnabas, son of, anyone know? Encouragement. What is that? His actual name was Joseph. But the apostles nicknamed him son of encouragement. What does that tell you about this guy? You see, when Paul, before he was Paul, Greek name, but when he was Hebrew name, Saul... He was a tough-as-nails, prickly bloke. He was hard as nails. He was hard to get along with. And we see him on the road to Damascus get knocked off his horse by the Lord. God transforms him into a completely different man. Where there was hate, there's now gentleness. There's forgiveness where there's this anger that he had because he he was responsible for the death of Stephen it says they came when at the the stoning of Stephen they came and they they gave their cloaks to Saul which was a an indication that he's the one who's held to account for this thing he was responsible for the death of Stephen the first martyr of the church and we read that that his his conversion was dramatic But the Christians in Jerusalem didn't believe it. And so Saul left Israel, left Jerusalem, and he went around, if you follow my air map, to Tarsus in Cilicia, sort of in Turkey, South Turkey. And that's where he sort of spent his time. And and then it was Barnabas who said, has anyone seen Saul lately? No, I wonder where he is. And by this time, Barnabas has gone up to Antioch, north of Jerusalem, right up here in Syria. And, and he's, he's got a gathering of believers. He's got the church. It's thriving. It's, in fact, it's growing so fast, he says, we need help. We need someone who really knows the, the word of God, has memorized the first five books of the Bible, which every Jew by the age of 12, if they were educated, had to do. How's that for a pass for baptism class? Memorize the first five books of the Bible. I in Hebrew. And he goes and he gets Saul, brings him back to Antioch and introduces him to everyone. This is Saul. He's the guy who's, you know, Saul, 
he's killed lots of Christians. Welcome him into fellowship. And it's Barnabas who's done that. And Barnabas gives him this, this path that others can see Barnabas is right. This guy's been changed. He's completely transformed. Barnabas takes him under his wing. Barnabas, being a little bit older, takes him under his wing and, and really cares for him. Barnabas was a Levitical of the Levitical priesthood. He was a Levite. So he, he was someone who knew his stuff, but not as well as Saul, because he'd been trained by the leading scholar in Israel by the name of Gamaliel. So, they, so it was Barnabas that did this. And then they go from Antioch. It says that, that, that as they were praying together and concerned for the mission of Christ, the Holy Spirit came and spoke through the elders there and said, separate Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them and send them out to proclaim the gospel. And, and the first place they go to is Barnabas's hometown. It tells you a lot about Barnabas. They go to Cyprus, where Barnabas was from. He was a Jew, but he, he made Cyprus his home. And that's where he goes. And Saul comes with him. But Saul says, you know, we're going into territory that's not Jewish. I think I'm going to change my name to a Greek name, the Greek equivalent of Saul, which is Paulus, Paul. And together they form a tremendous partnership and they plant churches all around that region and they come back to Antioch. Antioch was Barnabas' home church. Antioch was Paul's home church. If you read through Acts, every time, every time, uh, Paul comes back to Antioch after every missions trip. And then controversy happens. The controversy of some Jews who go into the churches that they planted and said, did Barnabas and Paul tell you that you, all you meant you had to be circumcised first? You have to become a Jew first before you can become a Christian. And they said, no, they didn't. Oh, well, you do. And then Paul and Barnabas heard about it. And Paul, believe it or not, was furious. Barnabas was upset. Paul was furious. Tells us something about them. And it got to the point where this dispute among the Judaizers, those people who said you had to become a Jew first before you could become a Christian, became so intense that James, the brother of Jesus, who was now leading the church in Jerusalem, said, okay, hang on, time out, guys, time out. We need to get this sorted out. And he called for the council, all the Christian leaders to come to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, verse 1, and let's get this sorted out. And the end of it was, it was proven that Paul was right. James said, it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit and basically says exactly what Paul had been teaching. Apparently Paul liked being right. Is there anyone else like that? There's a lot of wives looking at their husbands right now. It's uh, the most curious phenomena just happened. Anyway. And so after this, Paul and Barnabas say, and in fact the order of the name switches from that point, it was Barnabas and Paul, now it's Paul and Barnabas. We should go back to the churches that we planted and tell them the good news. And Barnabas says, that's great. I've got a great idea. How about we grab John Mark? You know the guy who came the first bit of the way and then he betrayed us and he walked away from us and he left us high and dry? How about we go and reach out to him and bring him back in and get him on this trip as well? And Paul said... No way, yeah. In the Greek, it's, you yeah, know, no way. Yeah. 
That's right. So let's read that verse. It says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Important point. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do to, to the work. And there arose, surprise, surprise, a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now this is what's really interesting here. Who was having the dispute? Which two people were having the dispute? Paul and Barnabas. How did Mark feel about this? We don't know. Mark wasn't actually there. And most commentators are sort of pointing out that Paul's beef was with John Mark. And I guess it kind of was. So maybe in one sense, Paul was having a disagreement with Barnabas. And probably when John Mark took off, he probably said, well, we didn't want you anyway. Get out of here. You know, like Aussies do, right? We do that, like. I'm told in the World War I in the trenches when, when a digger died beside another digger, the digger, just to, to get over the immediate grief, would go, yeah, he's a mongrel anyway. You know, it's kind of that, that, that callousness. And it seems like Paul may have done that. We don't know. But here's this dispute between Paul and Barnabas. So track with me now as we look at this, this incredible principle that we see recorded by Dr. Luke in the book of Acts. Here's the first principle I think we need to get. Even the nicest, godliest, sweetest people can be poisoned by unforgiveness. I think for a long time this became a rub for Paul, the apostle. It must have been. Because of this next thing that we notice from the text we deduce from the text there is no record that we have in the scripture of Paul and Barnabas ever reconciling that's a that's a big dispute for a team that was instrumental in carrying out the great commission unbelievable so here's the question I ask if someone with the depth of knowledge and character as the Apostle Paul and the depth of character of Barnabas, who I, I, I you know, given, given a choice, do you want to be more like Barnabas or more like Paul? I reckon I'd want to be more like Barnabas. But given those two characters, and there's no record of them reconciling, here's the question I now want to go to application. In other words, let's think about this as a church. How the heck are we to reconcile disputing parties within our church if two of the greatest people in Christendom couldn't figure it out for themselves? How are we to do that? Can, can you see that this can be quite difficult? That's the first thing I want you to know. And we need a couple of things in order to do it. And if you're hearing the word humility go through your head, you're hearing the right thing. So this is what we notice. We see Paul 
tracking through life with Silas and particularly Titus. Titus doesn't get a lot of mention, but we know that Titus was, was with Paul for most of the time. And for some reason, Luke chooses only to re- refer to it once or twice. But this is what we read toward the end of Paul's life. Colossians chapter 4. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And note this, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Isn't that... So can you see Paul has reconciled with Mark. How about this one? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. 2 Timothy, the last epistle Paul wrote. Of all the people Paul could call upon and fondly describe, this is what he says. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry so mark has john mark and paul they've reconciled well and truly reconciled there's another reference in philemon as well where paul brags on mark what a great guy he is so they've reconciled so that tells me a couple of things paul softened and john mark repented he repented of his lack of courage he repented of what he'd done So when Paul says we're not taking him with us because he's done the wrong thing and he hasn't apologised, in many respects Paul was probably right. But the problem is he burned another relationship in the process. And I think as a church we need to be mindful. You might have a beef about something. And can I tell you, there are churches right now being split over whether you should be vaccinated or not vaccinated against COVID. And can I tell you, that is not grounds for breaking fellowship with another believer. So here's what we see is necessary to rebuild after forgiveness is transacted. By the way, it is highly probable, highly probable, that Barnabas wrote the letter, the epistle to the Hebrews. Highly probable. I told you he was a Levite. The, the, the language of Hebrews is Levitical. It's all about what a Levitical priest would, would know. It's all about it. And there is actually ancient church fathers who describe Barnabas as being that author. And in the end of it, when quite probably he knows Paul is in prison. Paul was imprisoned in 62. Hebrews was written in 63. And by the, by the end of 63, Paul had probably already received his death notice that he was going to be executed. And the writer to the Hebrews doesn't mention him, but he mentions Timothy, which is a way of saying the next best thing that I can tell you about to Paul is Timothy. So quite possibly something in Barnabas's heart transacted as well. But here's how we rebuild after forgiveness number one forgiveness is transacted sorry forgiveness is extended from your heart it's transacted when there's repentance that's the second thing that happens when someone offers here's the next thing a true apology i've told you what a true apology sounds like husbands and wives 
need to be able to do this in their marriage, to save their marriage and strengthen their marriage. And the fourth thing, reconciliation, which means re-establishing fellowship. That's why I would say to a husband and wife that have a tiff and one of them chooses to sleep on the couch or if you have a doghouse big enough, chooses or maybe doesn't get to choose but has to sleep out there, you are doing the wrong thing. Do not let the sun go down on your upsetness or the Bible says your wrath. Would you please stand? The whole point of why we can forgive is because Christ died for us. He forgave us because he gave up his life for us. And do you think he wants us hating one another because someone thinks you should get vaccinated and someone thinks you shouldn't? Good grief. Good grief. We need to understand what Christ has done for us. Can we worship him in this time? Then I'm going to be back in a moment to close in prayer. close in prayer this is the prayer that has been developing over this series and I hope now you can appreciate it and you can make this yours if you've never received the forgiveness of God then I'm asking you to repent acknowledge what you've done it's not been what God would have you do and now come to him and make this your prayer Father God I regret my sins against you. Please forgive me. Help me from this point to live for you and to grow in my knowledge of you and to share your love and forgiveness with others. And help me to forgive those who hurt me and seek forgiveness for those I have hurt. Fill me with your spirit. And Father, I pray that for us as a church, we would be able to live this out, forgiving one another, being tender-hearted, kind, merciful to each other. And Father, I pray for those perhaps who've made this prayer, the prayer that they've never prayed before, that today would be a new beginning for them, that you would begin to transform them dramatically into the person you've created them to be. Now, Lord, help me as pastor to lead this church and to do the very thing that I've been talking about over these past few weeks. May we know the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. As we've heard tonight, even the nicest, sweetest, godliest people can be poisoned by unforgiveness. Forgiveness involves repentance, a true apology and reconciliation. That concludes this short series on forgiveness. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.